This is only a test. This is only a test. This is only a test. Hello and welcome to the Uncover Up. I'm one of your co-host Nathan Radke, and joining me today from across the bunker is Dr. Lee Kunla. Hello, hello. So, Lee, we are going to wade into the world of American politics today. Yes, we are. We are coming also quite close to the present for us. Yeah, this is only five years ago. Yeah. But which still, I think, falls into our rule that we won't talk about anything immediately. We have waited five years to talk about this. That feels recent to us, but it's probably long enough ago. Yeah, and uh, we have all the data now. If we had tried to talk about this earlier, I don't think we would have been able to know as much as we know now. I feel like a lot of the chips have fallen and we have a good we have a good read on the situation, I think. I feel pretty confident. Yeah, I mean, it is strange. You, you realize that a lot of these things have never come up before in any of our previous episodes. Things like email. Right. And computers. <laughs> yeah. So this is a pretty recent development for us. Now, because we are talking about American politics, I mean, that's such a partisan thing. Yes. So I thought that we should probably start off by opening up about our own political views so that people can take that into account as they're listening to the things that we have to say. I I can hear listeners dropping off by the second as we engage in this part of the podcast. But okay, I'll admit that I am not a fan of either of the two American parties, the uh, Republicans and the Democrats. If if you force me to vote for one of them, like at gunpoint or something, uh, maybe I'd vote for the Democrats. But I, I, I would be very unhappy too. And, and also, we're not Americans, so we didn't vote in any of the American elections. So we, we're not partisan in that way. We don't have an axe to grind with one particular party. I'll go even further than you. Okay. Here's what I would say. I mean, we spent so much time looking over all these redacted files and, and reading about uh, American government history. Here's my proposal. Anybody who serves as American president should serve an equal amount of time in prison afterwards. (laughs) So if you have a four-year term, then you do four years in prison. If you have an eight-year term, then you do eight years in prison. I love it. Because it seems to me that all of the American presidents have committed war crimes, crimes against their own population. And I I think you should know this going in. Yes. I think you should know if I win this then I'm going to be going to prison for four or eight years. Right. So that that's my political view. I think that basically the whole thing is quite criminal and terrible. Right. Okay. That seems like a good starting point. Yeah. Yeah. I think, and from there, we can then move forward into uh, basically the mess of the 2016 American election. And this is almost an anniversary of that. In fact, we are one day past the five-year anniversary of the 2016 election. I remember that day very clearly because I was I was really excited for what I considered to be the whooping of the century or the maybe the bleep whooping. I'll bleep I'll bleep Thank out. You. I'll bleep it. You said and I'll bleep out the word. Okay. Um I was so sure that Hillary Clinton was going to win. My only regret is that I hadn't spent that entire day making wagers with everybody. Oh, you would have been so rich. I would have wagered. I would have taken you for such a fool. And I would have thought I would was going to cash in like crazy if you had wagered with me. But 
like so many others, I woke up in complete disbelief at what had happened that night. And I guess what we're going to talk about today, I think accounts for some of how that election was lost so dramatically by the Clinton campaign. For some of it. And this is sort of, a, this is a crucial exactly. aspect. Because also uh, Clinton ran a terrible campaign. Yep. They ignored like entire states like Michigan and just taking them for granted. Yep. There was kind of a, a feeling in the air where people had the idea that politics had been crooked for too long and they wanted something fresh and, and new to come in. Like yep. all of these things played a role and also some more sort of unpleasant things that maybe we'll get to in future episodes. Yeah. And I, I think you bring up an important point, which is that um, it's really hard ever to measure the impact of a an active measure or a disinformation campaign. So I think we'll be cautious and say this was a contributing factor to Clinton losing, Hillary Clinton, that is. But from my reading of previous elections, Trump had himself run also a really terrible campaign and was a really easy target for conventional political uh, attack ads and things that just made him look terrible. There was the Access Hollywood video, which was him kind of confessing to sexual assault. And in previous years, you would have thought, well, that's the end of that. I mean, that is the end of that candidate. It's quite remarkable uh, how badly it went for Clinton, I think. And I do think that this accounts for part of it. But yeah, you know, we're not sure by how many percentage points. No, but it definitely played a role. So, so what is this thing that we yeah, keep bouncing? Yeah, what is bouncing? this thing that we keep what, bouncing? What is this thing? And so what you're going to be arguing today is that there was an active campaign by, I almost said Soviet, by <laughs> Russian intelligence, yep. multiple Russian intelligence agencies yep. who were actively working to try to torpedo the Clinton campaign. Is that right? That is absolutely right. Just in plain speak, they hacked the Democratic Party's election computers, not the voting machines, but they got inside their systems and they were able to get a whole bunch of, yeah, was it compromising? It was certainly sensitive information in the form of emails, in the form of uh, campaign research, say against Trump or against some of uh, the other people who are running in that election. And yeah, they, 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 they breached, they, they used a cyber hacking outfit in, in Russia. Uh, they breached the computers they breached the security systems, they got inside, and then they exfiltrated, they got out all of this information, which they later made public. Now, we'll talk also about how it is that we know about this, but I'll just start out by saying that this is, you know, except for Putin, this is basically accepted across the board, that this actually happened. So it's not in the realm of a conspiracy where we're eh, we're not entirely sure, but there's compelling evidence. This is more along the lines of, you know, MK Ultra or COINTELPRO, where we've got a lot of documents that essentially prove that this went down. Mm -hmm. Now, just because we're talking about what we're talking about, I want to also talk about what we're not talking about. Um, because there were a lot of different campaigns that actually happened in the 2016 election. So one of the things we're not talking about is the influence campaign. The election influence campaign run by, get this, the IRA. 
But not the, not the not the Irish Republican Army. That's right. Not the IRA. The other IRA, the Internet Research Agency, it was creating fake American accounts and then posting to Facebook and trying to drive a wedge in American politics by really ratcheting up divisive discourses, messaging really horrendous things. And, and anyway, even planning rallies. Yep. Yeah. And even planning counter rallies to those rallies in the yeah. hopes that people from both sides would show up and fight. And, and, and that was successful, especially online. There was a lot of vitriol. There was a lot of anger from people on various sides. Now, I reference here somebody who we've talked about in previous podcasts, Thomas Ridd, who wrote the book that I'm, again, going to cite from today. The book is actually called Active Measures, The Secret History of Disinformation and Political Warfare. And he makes the point, which we made in a previous podcast, that when, when you do these kind of influence campaigns, when a foreign state does these influence campaigns, it's working on uh, flashpoints within that society already. So it's not like they were generating this kind of animosity, but they were really ratcheting up what already existed within that society. But we're not going to talk about that. Cambridge Analytica, IRA, all of that kind of stuff, we're going to keep to one side. We'll talk about it later. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There'll be more podcasts to come, I'm sure. The other two things I want to bracket out of this conversation are whether the Trump campaign people, and maybe including Trump, were actively in on the conspiracy. Now, I'm going to use the Mueller report as um, a big source for what we're talking about. And they said, look, there's not enough information to implicate the any uh, high-level members within the Trump campaign of actually colluding with the Russians to hack the Democrats. There was evidence of connections between the Trump campaign and the Kremlin, but there wasn't evidence necessarily of collusion or of conspiracy. That's right. So even though they might have, they were certainly happy to get the information go along with it, for the purposes of what we're talking about today, we'll just assume that they themselves, though, were not the actual initiators or were not centrally involved. And then lastly, we're not talking about hacking actual voting machines, which is another fear that people have because now often the actual voting machines are electronic. And so theoretically, you could tamper with the mechanism inside. And even though you register a vote for one party, it spits out a vote for somebody else. Although those machines tend not to be connected to the internet. Right. But Some, we're not talking about this anyway. Exactly. These are the things we're not talking These about. These are the things we're not talking about. What we are talking about is Russian intelligence knowingly and deliberately hacking Democrats, specifically the DCCC and the DNC. And for our purposes, that's just basically like the Hillary Clinton campaign and the... Um, well, the way to look at it is that the American political parties are fundamentally corporations. Like the Democratic Party is a corporation. The Republic Party is a corporation. And so what's being argued here is that Russian intelligence hacked into the Democratic Party corporation. Exactly. And there are differences and there are, you know, at different times, different aspects of the Democrats get hacked. And we're not going to belabor those details so much. For So unless it's super important, I'm just going to say the Democrats instead of the DCC or the DNC or Podesta or some other aid or whatever. Okay, so the Russians did some hacking and influenced the 2016 election, which is 
if I can just put make a brief aside, it's one of those old-timey conspiracies. I mean, it is like, this is our bread and butter here. And it, it even though we're now using computers, the playbook is really back to Cold War of the 60s and 70s. Yeah, and we're not going to like fan ourselves and faint and be like, oh my goodness, there's, <laughs> there's interference in elections. Because of course, this is something that happens pretty frequently. And, and like a lot of different countries take part in it. Yeah. There are lots of examples that we have pointed to in the past of American intelligence interfering with, say, an Iranian election in the yep. 1950s. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. No, this kind of tampering goes back, you know, as long as this kind of espionage and statecraft goes back to. You know, when this became public, there was a lot of, just as you say, Nathan, this kind of like... Pearl clutching. Pearl clutching and fanning and, oh my God, can you believe that this has happened to us and poor us? And, and we've only done it like two dozen times. Yeah. By, by we here, we mean the United States. But of course, you know, a lot of other states are involved in this as well. Okay, so I, I thought a good place to start would be... Now, we have, of course, done previous episodes on the KGB and their role in generating disinformation. So we did an episode way back where we talked about uh, the theory that uh, the CIA created HIV AIDS and that that was, in fact, a massive disinformation campaign by the KGB. We talked um, then of, a few months ago about... Uh, some more recent disinformation campaigns and active measures. and But I thought, nonetheless, it does seem a little tinfoil hat conspiracy theory in a bad sense, where you're like, oh, yeah, you know, the... Trump only won because the, the, the Russians hacked the, you know, the Democrats. And well, then you sound like somebody from the 1950s. You sound like Senator McCarthy. Yeah. So I, I just feel like, it, because, again, even though... I'm trained in politics, a lot of this came as a surprise to me how many examples there have been also just recently of really blatant uh, hacking of, you know, foreign governments' computers uh, and then the dumping of that information, sometimes combined with some disinformation. So I wanted to just briefly maybe run through a, a, a couple of historical examples, not only from Russia, Although we'll get to a juicy one from Russia. So we'll remember that back in 2012. So this is not exactly a hack, but it is a, it is, um, a release of very sensitive information. That was when Chelsea Manning leaked a quarter of a million Department of Defense documents to WikiLeaks. I don't remember if you remember that, but sure. that was a pretty stunning document dump. And I remember... Uh, and she was Bradley Manning when, when she uh, did this, uh, she would go into work with a, a CD that was apparently a Lady Gaga CD. She would put it into the disk drive, and it was, a, it was not a Lady Gaga CD. It was a blank CD that she would then fill up with documents. But she went through the trouble of putting on headphones and, like, mouthing Lady Gaga songs, so you think that, oh, yeah, yeah that's just, you know, there's... Bradley back then, there's Bradley just doing his job. Uh, anyway, so she walks out with a quarter of a million documents, some of which were quite sensitive, some of which showed uh, atrocities being committed by American soldiers against the Afghan population. Yep. Now, then there was the Edward Snowden document dump. For, he was a contractor, I think, for the NSA, and uh, he similarly 
you know, gave a huge trove of documents to, to WikiLeaks. Yeah, and in that case, he was blowing the whistle on a massive overreach of a surveillance program where it turned out that the NSA basically was had the capacity to read anybody's emails, to check phone records. Yep. I mean, it, it was it was an obscene overreach on the part of the NSA. And so Snowden came forward to tell the American people, hey, heads up, this is going on. So this kind of stuff, I guess, becomes more possible in an electronic age because you are able to get a quarter of a million documents onto a pretty innocuous... Well, it, it's a lot easier to walk out of your office with a Lady Gaga CD than it right. is with just like stacks and stacks and stacks of file folders. Right, which is the, the, the big dump before this back in the day with the Pentagon Papers. Someone's going to just sample you saying big dump. Big dump, big dump, big dump. Big dump, big dump, big dump, big dump. <laughs> and they're just going to play it over and big over again. Big document dump before this were the Pentagon Papers, and those actually had to be photocopied. So you actually had to get the piece of paper classified. You had to walk over to a photocopy, which you were not allowed to do. You're not allowed to make photocopies of these types of documents. Photocopy them, and then actually walk out of the office with this stuff. So it's a lot easier in the digital information age than it, than it would have been. And this, though, just sets us up for the fact that, yeah, okay, so this kind of stuff is now possible. Are foreign powers doing it? Is there any evidence that we have of this? There's so much evidence that I'm only going to give one what I thought was a pretty nice example, in part because it was the Russians. We're pretty much absolutely clear that it really did happen. And it was pretty close to the 2016 election. So, yeah. So Russia invades Crimea and annexes Crimea in 2014. From Ukraine. Yes. This gets us into a whole broader issue of which we, we're, we're not going to at all talk about. But just to flag it, what had happened with the end of the Soviet Union is that a lot of former Soviet states declared independence, didn't want anything to do with what now is Russia. And so the landmass and the political clout and the economic clout of the former Soviet Union when it becomes Russia is, is, is drastically diminished. And uh, this is a sort of an ongoing threat to Russia. And while the Ukraine was always a bit of a problem state because it was looking to the West or it seemed to be looking to the West and entry into the European Union and stuff And there like was that. a really rough history between Russia and Ukraine, especially under Stalin. Yes. So all of which we, we don't want to get uh, something into. Something else we're not talking about. Something else we're not talking about. But anyway, there's, got, there's some history there and it's worth looking into if you're interested. But I, I don't want to, I just want to merely state that in 2014, uh, the Russians invade Crimea to annex it from Ukraine. Now, what happens is that there's a Ukrainian colonel named Igor Protsik. His emails get hacked. And into the emails are slipped a couple of forgeries. And these forgeries make it seem as though that the uh, invasion of Crimea by the Russians was actually a... American-Ukrainian false flag, okay? So that is to say the Ukrainians 
uh, are essentially attacking themselves by pretending to be Russians in order to make the Russians, you know, look terrible and whatever. Yeah. So this is a classic disinformation campaign that's launched at a time when Russia has gone into Ukraine in order to generate confusion and maybe delay an international response. Exactly. Because the Russians are actually invading Crimea. So in order to kind of, yeah, exactly as you say, I think of this now, I'm starting to think of this a bit like throwing sand in your opponent's eyes. You know, you want to, you want to, Punch them in the face, so throw sand in their face first, and then they're confused and disoriented, and then you can kind of do what you want for a couple of seconds or a minute uh, while, while they're busy trying to get the sand out. And so this is just one example. They also screwed around with the Ukrainian elections. And so the Russians in, po say, post-2010 are actively involved in all different people's all different countries' political systems. And of course, with the widespread adoption of the internet in the 21st century, this is, this is a new field of warfare. This is a new field of battle. Yeah. And I think the Russians, better than almost anybody else, have taken full advantage of that new battlefield. Exactly. Exactly. And this is, again, what for me is so shocking in doing this research is that these kinds of things tend not to be part of the official history. Even now, when you read about the uh, election of Donald Trump, the fact that there was a massive Russian active measures as opposed to a disinformation campaign. It was, it was an active attempt to sway the election is not part of the official story. It'll be like a footnote somewhere. Oh yeah, and then you know the Hillary Clinton's emails were hacked. But it's central, especially now, and people are doing it all the time. A lot more than I expected. So let's get into then, how did this start? How, I mean, we've talked about, you know, these emails were hacked or those emails are hacked. Yeah. How did this start? Like, what was the initial attack? What does an email hack attack even look like? All right. March 19th, 2016. And uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign chairman, a guy named John Podesta, receives an email that looks like it comes from... Gmail. And I'm actually going to read you the email because you've probably received something very similar to this if you have a Gmail account. So this is an email to John Podesta. Hi, John. Someone just used your password to try to sign into your Google account, john.podesta at gmail.com. Okay, now then there's some details, like technical details that follow the date, the IP address, the location is given as Ukraine. The email continues, Google, stop this sign-in attempt. You should change your password immediately, and then there's a link that says change password. Best, the Gmail team. Now, John Podesta is no fool and is not just going to click on any link. And so he sends this email to his IT department. And the IT department, it's not entirely sure what they said, but certainly John Podesta's people understand the message to be, this is a legitimate email from Google, please change your password immediately. So either John or one of his aides clicks that link, change password in that email from Google and goes in and enters his old password and then enters his new password. But as Nathan noted, it was a phishing email. And in fact, I learned a new word in this research. It's spear phishing. 
So it's directly targeted to people to get your username and your login credentials. And of course, he had not gone to a Gmail, an official Gmail page. He went to a page created by Alexei Lukashev, who is then a 25-year-old senior lieutenant in the Russian Military Intelligence Unit. The GRU. The GRU. And uh, his specialty was creating these kinds of fake emails that looked exactly like the real ones. Now, this is just part of the information landscape that we live in now. I mean, how often do you get one of those phishing emails? But normally they're riddled with typos. They, yeah. they don't mention your name. Yeah. There, there's like broken links. Or you get those phone calls. I get them twice a day saying, oh, this is the government of Canada. You're under arrest. Yes. Press one and give us your social insurance number. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, this is a pretty common thing, but this sounds like a fairly uh, sophisticated version of that. Yeah, in the sense that there, it was not obvious looking at it that it was it was not real. And uh, like I've often said, as soon as the scammers get better editors, right, they're going to do. We're in big trouble. Yeah, then we're all in big trouble. Yeah. So this was uh, Lukashev's specialty. And for whatever reason, John's team says, go ahead. And they use that link, which sends them to a phishing page, which was actually a page run by this unit in the GRU, the um, Russian uh, military intelligence. And uh, they get his login credentials right away. Like within seconds, like milliseconds of him doing this, they get his login credentials. And that's, that's the essential entry point into this. Now, they, they actually do this another 60 or 70 times. Once they are inside, they, they now have access to all the internal emails. So they send out yet more of these types of emails and they get yet more login credentials. This allows them to move deeper and deeper into the different servers. Now, I have to probably should have foregrounded this at the beginning of the podcast. I am not an expert. Lee is not a hacker. I am not a hacker. I, I, my, my savviness with computers is like the on and off button. Like that's about all I can do. I can turn it on. If it doesn't work, I turn it off and turn it on again. Otherwise, you know, that's, that's the extent of it. So, but conceptually, this is, this is pretty straightforward. I mean, I can't, I can't write any code and I can't tell you exactly how the malware works or you know, whatever, but they were able to gain access through his emails into the system. So then the first thing they do also is they just download all his emails. They go phishing for more login credentials. What this allows you to do is it allows you to set up also fake users. You can pretend you're some guy from the Democratic Corporation uh, IT department. Exactly. Exactly. Or you could, let's say John decides the very next day to change his password yet to something else uh, using the legitimate thing. That doesn't matter because now you can create six or seven fake personalities with their own login credentials that now have permanent access. Mm -hmm. Now, when they're in there, they upload, uh, (laughs) this is a bit beyond my ability here, but they upload two what is now well-known malware. They upload X-Agent and X-Tunnel. And X-Agent is a really malicious piece of software which allows the people on the other end, the hackers, back in Russia, to be able to see 
what is on your computer screen. They are able to, uh, quote-unquote, see what you are typing. Now, so this gives them also now access to all the other systems. Creepy. Because you have to go to put in your login credentials for this, and you have to put in your login credentials for that. So they can be sitting somewhere in St. Petersburg or whatever, yeah. watching a copy of your screen on their screen. Exactly. It's like that. That'd be eerie. <laughs> it's so eerie. <laughs> so this happens in March. By April of 2016, a lot of the Democrats' internal systems have been compromised. Now, they don't know it yet. And they are, as this is happening, the, the Russian intelligence group, which I guess at this point needs a name. So from the report. Two military units of the GRU carried out the computer intrusion into the Clinton campaign, DNC and DCCC. Military units 26165 and 74455. Okay, that's the, those are the, like, quote-unquote, official names. But uh, later, and we'll get to them, CrowdStrike, which is a security, internet security firm that the Clinton campaign hires once they realize they've been hacked, they give this outfit the name Fancy Bear. I actually got really curious, how come Fancy Bear? Like, what, what is this? Well, the bear... Because it's Russian. Exactly. And the fancy because... They didn't elaborate on fancy. Because oh. there's also Cozy Bear, it turns out. And I'll get to them in just a second. But that's right. If the hackers or the programs they're running are identified with Russia, CrowdStrike gives them the name Bear. If it's, say, associated with China... Panda Bear. Exactly. Seriously? They, yes, that's they hilarious. give it the name Panda. So it'll be like whatever panda, mm-hmm. and then in this case, whatever. So, so we are dealing right now with Fancy Bear. Now, Fancy Bear is the military intelligence unit that gained access through John Podesta's initial faux pas into the Democratic, the Hillary Clinton campaign. But it turns out there was already another unit in there from a year earlier. So in fact, <laughs> and the Russians themselves don't know this, So the FSB, which is the uh, descendant now of the KGB, and if you listen to the KGB episode, you know that the KGB went through a huge amount of acronyms, and it got a new one um, in the 90s, I think it, 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 it became the FSB. But a lot of the structures are the same, and they actually made it in as early as 2015. Now, the FBI warned the Clinton campaign about this, and for whatever reason, they didn't act on it. So it got, it got to the point where these other guys, yeah, for the, the unit of the FSB, that's Cozy Bear. And Cozy Bear and Fancy Bear don't know that the other one is in as well. And they even like start stealing documents from each other. <laughs> this is one of the issues, though, when you're a top secret agency. And the same thing happens with American agencies. Sometimes the CIA and the FBI will be basically at cross purposes or working the same case at the same time without knowing it, because they don't necessarily talk to each other because they're secretive. Exactly. Okay, so we're in April of 2016. They're full on, they're they're exfiltrating huge amounts of documents. So all of Podesta's emails, all of Hillary Clinton's emails, they're getting out um, uh, campaign research, that they did say on the Trump campaign and on Trump and uh, his allies. And this is all 
that all this data is being moved out for the period of well, about two to three months. So all of April, all of May, and some of June. And then uh, the Clinton campaign discovers that there's been an intrusion. They call in CrowdStrike. CrowdStrike is this company that deals specifically with network security and companies and stuff like that. And uh, they are able to identify where the which was the initial breached machine. They, they take it offline. They're able to remove all the, the malware that's been uploaded. So I talked about X-Agent, which allows them to see your screen and, and see your keystrokes. X-Tunnel allows them to get out huge amounts of data. Uh, it's just basically like a compression program that then allows you to move a huge amount of data out. So we're talking about like 16 gigabytes of data. It's a lot of like, data. It's a huge amount of data. And then CrowdStrike and the Clinton campaign do something quite unexpected. They actually announce in June 14th of 2016, there's a Washington Post article about this. Hillary Clinton, as well as CrowdStrike, go on record to say the Russians hacked us. This is the Russian. So just also in terms of reconstructing the timeline, I think it's worth remembering that by June of 2016, it was in some sense public knowledge that the Russians were actively interfering in the election. So now the Russians have been called out. And uh, what they had done is they had actually um, created a fake account. They registered a website called dcleaks.org. So D, the letter D, C, and then leaks.org. And, and they were posting the information there. But it wasn't going well. Nobody was noticing. Uh, except, of course, CrowdStrike and the Hillary Clinton campaign. So they were like, look, this DC leaks thing and whatever, this is all like... This is the Russians. This is their intelligence apparatus. And it's, you know, it's, they're messing with the elections. And then the Russians are like, no, 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 no. This has nothing to do with us. And created a fake persona called, and I've heard it pronounced variously. I will pronounce it as Guccifer, G-U-C-C-I-F-E-R, Guccifer 2.0. Now, Guccifer 1.0, the original, was a Romanian hacker. Uh, and he had been arrested. So this was some nod to this hacker, and the implication being there's a you know a, a, a kind of copycat hacker out there who it, it just on his own has somehow breached these systems and is, you know, kind of like some vigilante just distributing this information to whoever will take it. You need two things as a hacker. You need computer skills and you need like a really cool nickname. Yeah. Those are the things. That's it. I, I'm not so sure. They, so they, they took someone else's cool nickname to yeah. try to like get in on his cred. Well, it's funny because it just, it was a very thin story. Like uh, there was a journalist who went after this story and tried to contact Guccifer and talk to him in Romanian. And it was clear the dude did not speak Romanian. So yeah, there was, and there was, again, we'll get into how we know all this stuff, but that the job that they did was relatively sloppy. So one of the reasons, like all the way down, once CrowdStrike got involved, one of the reasons, say, that we know Lukashev was part of it is because 
when they he made those uh, fake Gmail phishing emails, he used what's called a link shortening service. So when you create an actual internet link, it's often like unwieldy, like 50, 60, 70 characters long. And they're characters. They're not, they're not anything comprehensible. So you can go to a link shortening service and that will give you, it'll hide the actual link that the, you know, 70 characters and replace it with something comprehensible like change your password or click to subscribe or whatever. Now, when he did that, he did not set his system on private. So uh, CrowdStrike was then able to kind of ferret out who this guy was. There was other things like in the metadata, there was Cyrillic font. Now, that is Russian font. That's a bit of a giveaway. You know, there was stuff like that where you're like, uh, there was fingerprints kind of all over the place if you knew how to access it, if you knew how to look there. Why was it such a bad thing for these emails to be released? There, there were a couple things that came out in those emails that looked were a really bad look for the Clinton campaign. And I would say the whole Democratic Corporation. You might recall that there had been this really tense battle between Clinton and Bernie Sanders to get the nomination. Yeah. And once those emails were released, it appeared that the Democratic Corporation was heavily favoring Clinton when they should have been impartial. Right, exactly. So, and you see this coming up then after uh, Bernie leaves the race and it's, you know, Clinton is nominated as the Democratic candidate. People are really upset. They're like, he got muscled out. You know, this is, this was unfair. But that information only becomes available once the emails have been hacked and publicized. Mm -hmm. And there was other stuff too, like Clinton had been doing a lot of talks at banks. This was at a time when there was a lot of anti-bank sentiment, understandably because of the the recent financial crashes. And Clinton had been in public talking tough about regulating banks, but then it turned out from these emails that she was actually going and speaking at these banks and being all, Nah, we're good. It's fine. So I, I think of it like this. I generally don't erase my emails. I, I like to have a record of whatever, not not necessarily of my correspondences, but often it's just useful to remember what my password was to something or where I found something or whatever. But I, of course, have, as a result, most emails that I've ever received, I just, I've saved them. Now, I'm pretty sure, I mean, I certainly haven't gotten up to anything dangerous or illegal, but I'm, says. You're right. but I'm pretty sure that I would not want that just being posted online, like my whole 15, 20 years of email correspondences with all different people. Of course, I've said, you know, unfriendly things about people. Of course, I've said self-incriminating things, things that could be read in a certain way that would make me look terrible. Yeah, things um, that if the person who it's meant for reads it, it's fine. But if it becomes general knowledge, yeah, it's less fine. And I so I think that was also generally what was happening is it was just embarrassing. So it wasn't necessarily just about, oh, the DCC was not, DCCC was not uh, partial when it came to Sanders, but also, uh, what's her name? Uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Exactly. You know, does it says nasty things about Bernie. Yeah, and, and she was the head of the Democratic Corporation. Right, and it just doesn't look good. No, and it also fed into this narrative 
of the crooked Clintons. Right. And that's why it was so effective, because there was already sort of these ideas floating around that the Clintons were crooked and they were part of this sort of big crime family. And so then when this comes out and it looks like the Democratic corporations tilted in favor of them, then that just feeds right into that story that was already there, which is always more effective. And the Trump campaign did something which in retrospect is actually quite clever. So when the FBI got involved, once once so once the uh, Clinton campaign realized they're hacked, they you know they get CrowdStrike involved. They also get the FBI involved, and they hand over to the FBI all the emails, except personal emails. So they delete the personal emails. That then becomes for Trump and his campaign a talking point, and it's referenced as the 30,000 missing emails. I have no idea whether it's 30,000. I don't think anybody knows because they were genuinely erased. But No, I mean, what's amazing is that then Trump actually goes in front of cameras and asks Russia to find those 30,000 emails, like overtly says, Russia, if you're listening. That's right. So it actually, I have the quote right here. It's July 27, 2016. Trump says, quote, Russia... If you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. And then later he goes on to say that the American media will reward them handsomely if they can find that. Now, what Trump then insinuates in this is that not only was Hillary Clinton hacked, but that there is even more, not, not the stuff that's been released is the damning stuff, but precisely the stuff that hasn't been released is the damning stuff. And that's why you don't get to find out about it, right? That's why they being, again, here's all scare quotes. I don't mean any of this, but speaking from the way they were kind of casting her, you know, as you said, Nathan, she's part of this larger criminal organization. There was all this backhanded money that she's not going to tell anybody about. And so, you know, where are those really damning emails? And what's extraordinary is that just a few hours after he makes that announcement, you start to see like more uh, attacks, more hacking attacks into the, the private emails. Now, of uh, those Democratic members. Yeah, because the Russians actually take it seriously. Yeah, take they're this, like, well, sure, we'll do that. Yeah, they're like, we're, we're, because also when I began the research, my understanding was classic um, back in the day, Soviet and now Russian disinformation and active measures is meant to confuse and distract the enemy. But in this case, there seemed to be a really concerted effort to get Trump elected and not get Hillary elected. Like they were actually after a very specific outcome, which is a bit unusual for these kinds of operations. And Putin said afterwards at a press briefing that he preferred that Trump won that election. He said it openly. Yeah, yeah exactly. Now, the, the question though still remains to get these emails in front of people. So they exist. The, the Russians have them. The Clintons have said we've been hacked. But so, and some of the stuff has appeared on dcleaks.org, but so far that, you know, the 16 gigabytes of information has not been released. And part of the problem is it's too much information and almost all of it is really painfully boring. Yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, it's a lot of stuff about, you know, organizing this or trying to get someone to do that. And I mean, think about how boring it is to read your own emails and then imagine reading thousands of someone else's emails. Yeah, I want to get back to just that point but what i wanted to move on to in this narrative that now um 
Gocifer 2.0, which is the new front for Fancy Bear. The fake hacker that's the, actually just a cover for Russian for, intelligence. For real hackers. <laughs> the fake hacker that's the front for the real hackers gets in touch with uh, Julian Assange at WikiLeaks. At first, Assange doesn't even pick up the message. He doesn't re- realize so they're contacting him over Twitter. And he doesn't really realize that this is anything. But eventually, they use that is the Russian uh, Secret Service uses WikiLeaks as the platform where they're going to release all these documents. Yeah, and WikiLeaks is far more high profile than this DC leaks thing that they come up with. So this is one of the kind of lessons in uh, spycraft that comes out of this is that you use already existing portals like WikiLeaks, something that's more general and that these specific sites that they don't they don't get the same kind of play. Yeah, if you came up with a bunch of disinformation videos, you should put them on YouTube. Don't come up with your own video playing site. Exactly. You're going to go to it. You got to go to where the people are. Exactly. So they figured that out and then they basically hand over these emails uh, and other information to Julian Assange. Now, the question is, does Assange know who he's dealing with? Because he is an interesting figure in this story. I, for a long time, thought that he was essentially just a, how do I put this, a bit on the anarchist spectrum. Yeah. A bit like, well... That that he wasn't rooting for any side. He was just rooting for the free spread of all information. That's sort of how he pitched himself. That's right. And that's very much, I sort of took him at face value at that. But it seems as though he was also anti-Clinton. Either way, it's not clear whether Assange knew who he was dealing with. Was he dealing with Russian secret intelligence? And further, it's not clear whether that would have mattered to him or not. Well, I mean, information is information. Yeah, I guess. But the fact that they did it to the Democratic Corporation, but not to the Republicans... Ah, that's I think that's where it becomes clear what their what their goal ultimately was. So it turns out in a subsequent investigation that the Republicans were also infiltrated. But but that information never went anywhere. So they got it, but they didn't release it. They didn't even tell anybody that they got it. But apparently the same fingerprints of the same hacking outfit was discovered with the Republicans as well. And I guess this is an important point because somebody listening who maybe is happy about Trump winning might say something like, well, yeah, but, you know, Clinton was eating babies and all these other things. And so it's good that Trump won. So I'm okay with the fact that the election got hacked, except maybe next time it's going to get hacked in a way you don't like, because that's the thing. As soon as the hacking happens, like you don't get to decide whether your side gets hacked or the other side gets hacked. And you don't get to decide if you're on the losing end or the winning end of it. Oh, I wanted to just pick up on just a brief thing, because it it did strike me, having done these couple of episodes in the past about uh, traditional Soviet disinformation. I'm thinking about that time uh, the STB took up those chests from a a lake in Germany and, you know, we're going to find Nazi documents in there. And what they strategically do is slip in a couple of forgeries. And what I thought was really interesting in this operation is that to to the best of my knowledge they did what like a smash and grab is called a hack and dump where you hack the information and then you just release it 
And what they didn't seem to do is slip in a couple of really juicy forged emails in there. I kind of feel like they missed a trick here because you could have like, with however many emails were finally released, they could have just put in one or two where Clinton says something really unpalatable. Well, I mean, it's hard to argue with success, though. Yeah, I just feel and, like and they could have they could have aimed higher. Is and, all I'm saying. And, and I, I don't. I doubt this was this was. I doubt this was part of what they were trying to do. But the fact that those emails were so boring, yeah, and so like just organizing things like a lot of pizza parties, right? What we find come out of that boredom is that people start to read into that boredom something sinister. And this basically gives birth to the Pizzagate. The fact that there are right. all of those bland emails, it's like, oh, pizza must mean something else. Surely they can't have 3,000 emails about pizza. Right. It must mean something else. So in a weird way, that boredom generated an even more powerful conspiracy than a forgery would have. Although there's no way that that was like the plan. Yeah, that could not have been part of a strategic mandate. Nobody is that clever. <laughs> Although in retrospect, you're right. It, 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 it. That's part of the plan now, because now that we've seen that happen, I'm sure there are people who are working on similar plans. But I think that the Pizzagate thing was more organic than that, although it still had some intelligence fingerprints on it. And that was so effective. Yeah. That, that conspiracy theory was so effective. And I think maybe that's the genius of this Russian plan. Just throw out this these documents yeah. and see what people make of them. Yeah. Another thing that I thought was kind of cool slash bizarre slash scary, if you were on Twitter in 2016, and if you reached out or, you know, whatever, connected with Guccifer 2.0, which you could have done, you were in direct connection with Soviet, in sorry, Russian intelligence. We and should put a dollar in the jar every time we make that mistake. Yeah. So between October and November, then, uh, WikiLeaks publishes more than 58,000 messages from the Podesta account. And some of this stuff is strategically timed to help the Trump campaign. So, for example... After the Access Hollywood tape comes out. Exactly. The very next day, there was another large trove of, you know, quote unquote, secret documents, very scary and revealing and tantalizing and all of this. And so guess what people stopped talking about? You know, it, it sort of interrupted the news cycle quite effectively. Uh, and this, I think, did, to some extent, lead to, at the end of the election, at that crucial moment, a kind of an erosion of... Uh, support for Clinton. Because as often is the case, you know, if enough mud is thrown, some of it sticks. And you think, well, probably most of the emails are nothing, but you know, people are getting worked up over it. And I can't personally be bothered to read them all. So and, and they did rip off Bernie. Yeah, and I, I was a Bernie supporter. And now I've got evidence that the, the exactly. Democrats are crooked, and they were against him. And exactly. you know what, I'm done with the whole election. I'm not even going to vote. Yeah. Exactly. So there was, I mean, because it was a very close election and Hillary Clinton did win the popular vote, but she did not get over the hump when it came to the electoral colleges, which is how it's actually organized. And so, again, we can't say that this was the definitive, decisive reason for her not winning the election. But 
ah, it's, it was a contributing factor. And I remember it playing out on live TV back on November 8th, 2016. I mean, as far as like game recognizing game, you got to say that was a really well executed operation by the Russians. Well, okay. So parts of it were and parts of it were really sloppy. Yeah. Like, like set your browser to private when you're doing, you yeah, know, come on, guys. international hacking. <laughs> That's why it's there. That's why you have that option. Right? <laughs> so there were moments that were really sloppy. There were, I frankly, I think there were missed opportunities with the, you know, if thinking as an evil spy master with your opportunity to really insert damning, you know, quote unquote evidence. Um, and, but, and also, you know what? They couldn't, if this was an award ceremony and we were handing out awards for, you know, operations and intelligence campaigns, <laughs> they would have to say, we couldn't have done this without the American media. Right. Exactly. They're one group that does not look good in this because it was so, even though the Washington Post article, which basically says, look, the Russians are hacking and the election is being um, manipulated. Even though that article comes out, I think, June 2014, uh, sorry, 14th of June, it was not the news story. It was not what I remember from that election. I remember that all coming after with the Mueller report and, you know, all of, all of the subsequent stuff, but not during the election. So, and I felt like they were kind of led around by the nose a bit. Yeah, and, and I guess maybe we end with the Mueller report because... When that came out, there was so much anticipation about what it would mean. And I think that there was a lot of people imagining Trump being let off in handcuffs. And when that didn't happen, people were like, oh, the Mueller report was a big dud. Yep. But when you read the Mueller report, it's extraordinary because it he's really basically is. saying we got attacked by Russia. Yeah, uh, it's, it's really extraordinary reading. Actually, for a report, it's very readable. It is. Like it's one of those where... <laughs> you could just, which I did, just lie down on your couch and, and, and read through it. It reads very much like a Wikipedia article summary of an event. Yeah, there's not that much jargon. It is very readable. It's very readable. There's parts of it are, of course, highly redacted because of, quote unquote, ongoing investigations. But it's a very readable, readable report. And it makes the case that it was pretty definitive that the hacks happened that it was Russians, that it was Russian Secret Service, like not like, again, referencing the beginning of the podcast, the Internet Research Agency, was, which was some private arm's length away private company that's mm -hmm. not directly under the Russian government's control. No, no, this is the Russian Secret Service that did this. And the Mueller report goes through how they did it and how to try and prevent future attacks, or at least the suggestion that this should be prevented, you know, that this is actually a con concern going forward. The problem is you're never going to get the party in power because they just won the election. So right. whatever happened, they're like, yeah, but we benefited from that. Right. So we maybe don't want to look into this. Right. We don't want to look into, we don't want to see how the sausage of our victory was made. Right, 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 right. Well, I have some takeaways from this, but what are yours, Nathan? My takeaways from this is that we are vulnerable. We have vulnerabilities in that we have vulnerabilities because of our capabilities. The, the fact that we have become cyborgs at this point and so much of our information is online and accessible through the web and transferable instantly, that's all amazing, but it also makes us more vulnerable. Mm. This idea that information has been liberated is 
is great news and also presents some real challenges. And I think this is one of the many times where we could see some of the challenges of that liberation of information into the world of digital. Yeah. Well, yeah, for me, I think we are back in the Cold War game. You know, there was this period of a lull, which happened to be very formative for me. That was when the 90s and early 2000s. Berlin Wall comes down. McDonald's goes up in Moscow. Exactly. It's over. It's over. And it kind of was over, actually, because the, the Soviet Union, when it collapses, some of the structures still exist within that country, but... It, they're not looking outside, you know, they're not doing massive operations. And so there is this 15, 20 year hiatus where you don't have a lot of this stuff going on. And I guess I just assumed it really was a historical matter, but it's not. It's, it's part and parcel of today. And I keep coming back to this realization that there is more going on in the shadows than I'd ever imagined. And I wonder, is there more going on there than what's actually happening in the light like are there things that really matter now taking place in the shadows in the conspiratorial realms and actually generating what we see in quote-unquote the real world well i guess that's you know we should have a podcast about that <laughs> i wish somebody had a podcast yeah, about that we should do a pod where somebody uncovers <laughs> the uh, cover-ups yeah the uncover yeah exactly <laughs> we, we'll, we'll talk about that yeah, off air yeah, yeah, okay 